0: Here we see the greatness, the grandeur, the majesty, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And so listen as I read Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 23. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. The faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have, have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant. Who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, So that you may have great endurance and patience, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the firstborn of the invisible God, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Father in heaven, I ask that you would apply this gospel truth to our lives, that those who come in burdened by the the sorrows and struggles of life will find hope in your word. Lord, those that come with doubts, that come as skeptics, Lord, that they would find in you truth and in your word, the the revelation of what is real. Lord, I pray that you would give faith to those who do not yet have faith. Lord, for those of us that have responded by faith, I pray that you would transform our lives, that this gospel hope would would change us. Lord, we pray that your work, your, your spirit would work in us, that we would see the mighty power which raised Jesus from the dead bring transforming work in our own hearts. Father, we come because we've been rescued, we've been redeemed, we've been saved by Jesus. Jesus Christ, our Savior, Jesus, our Rescuer and Redeemer. And so we pray in his name. Amen. The granite cliffs rise more than 3,000 feet from the floor of Yosemite Valley. And the Ken Burns documentary series, The National Parks." which he calls America's best idea, try and capture some of this grandeur with the, with the, the, the format and the, and the video and the, the, the pictures of what takes place. And perhaps the most memorable of the people introduced in the documentary, the sort of star of the series, is, is y- Yosemite Park Ranger Shelton Johnson. He describes his experience of first coming into the national parks, but, but then he describes his work of his decades serving in Yosemite. This is how Shelton Johnson describes it. He says, It's transcendent, just as walking into a cathedral is transcendent. But what could be more cathedral and feel than Yosemite Valley or the Grand Canyon? Ranger Johnson is describing that feeling of transcendence, an experience of something beyond the merely physical. He's describing that extraordinary and exceptional feeling of of realizing there is something or someone bigger than yourself. He he continues, he says, I I remember one day I was walking in the central part of Yosemite Valley. There was a woman there, and she was looking up and around her, and she just kept saying, Oh, oh my, oh, oh my. And so, as park ranger, I went over to her and I said, Ma'am, are you all right? And she said, yes, I'm, I'm just fine. I, I, oh, oh my. He said, I didn't have to explain, I didn't have to talk to her about the transcendent experience. She was having one. And it wasn't a transcendent experience because it was a national park. It was transcendent because it was Yosemite Valley. Oh, oh my. That recognition of feeling like there is something bigger than you. A majesty and a a glory surrounding you. Well, that's the the feeling of grandeur and majesty that we have in Colossians chapter 1. Where the Apostle Paul walks us through the rapturous language of seeing the glory of Jesus Christ so that you and I are caught up to say, "Oh, Oh my, my Savior, my Redeemer, my Rescuer. Because we see in this passage, and, and, and we really, this will, this will be but a mere overview of this passage, because you could spend a lifetime trying to plumb the depths of the glory and grandeur and majesty of Jesus. But we see here in Colossians 1 that Jesus Christ is the creator. He is the grand and glorious king of the universe. We're, we're, we're told that explicitly. Look back at verse 15. That Jesus, the son whom God loves, Jesus is the image of Of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. If you want to know what God looks like, it is here in Jesus. He is the picture, the icon, the image of who God is. He is the one who is born a a human baby, the firstborn over over everything that has been made. He has the, the place of supreme authority. And look at verse 16, describing the work of Jesus in creation. Verse 16, for by him all things were created things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You hear the majestic language. Everything you can see. Actually, more than that, the things that you can't even see. The the spiritual realm, the the principalities and powers, everything in the entire universe was made by Jesus. He is the one who is absolute Lord of all, the creator and sustainer of the universe. It was made by him and for him. Not merely to show forth the joy of God in creation, but but to, to echo back God's joy to him to show forth the glory of God in everything being made by Jesus and for him. And so that makes Jesus the one who is the head of the church. Verse 19 tells us that he is the one in whom the fullness of God dwells. He is the one who is absolutely supreme. Whatever power you can think of, Jesus made it. Whatever Position of privilege you can think would, is, is one that you would aspire to. Jesus made it. Jesus is greater than anything you can imagine. He is first. He has absolute control and supremacy in the universe. Now, this is glorious language for us, but we, we, we resist it. We don't like to, to talk about this kind of thing because when we declare that Jesus is supreme, we spiritually step back from it and say, well, there are parts of my life that I would like to keep under my own control. There are certain things that are more important to me than Jesus, and so I will be supreme over these things. I mean, Jesus can have all the rest. He can have all of you and all the stuff that's in your lives, but I'm keeping this for me. So spiritually, we resist this, but I think, I think in some sense, philosophically, we resist this claim that Jesus Christ is supreme. Because, because we culturally think And this isn't true just of 21st century Americans. This has been true at many times during the history of the church. But philosophically, we think that to claim that Jesus Christ is supreme, declare that everything belongs to him, that he is the only hope of salvation, he's the only rescuer, philosophically, we step back and say, well, wouldn't it be nicer if we all agreed that, that all religions are equally valid? that they all should get a seat at the table, that, are, that all religious systems, all philosophical systems, all, all views of the world, they, they're all really just different paths up the mountain. They're all going to get to God. Philosophically, that's what we want to say. But the problem is that, that truth claims have consequences. If you believe something that's wrong, then you are wrong. And the claims about how we would become right with God, those are central and fundamental claims. The claims about who made the universe, who controls the universe, those are central and fundamental claims. And so to claim that there are many ways to God means that you're telling me that I'm wrong. Because this language here, in, in, in verses 15 through 20, the, the, the commentators point out that the, there's, a, there's a poetic feel to the language. It feels a little bit different than the rest of Paul's letter. That likely, Paul is either writing a hymn, he's writing a song for the church, or he's quoting one that they are already singing. Because right from the beginning of the church's declaration of who Jesus is, it, are these core truths about the supremacy, the uniqueness, the exclusivity, the power of Jesus Christ. And so when you tell me that all religious systems should be equally valid, you're actually telling me that I'm wrong. Now, Rebecca McLaughlin is a, an author who's written a really helpful book called Confronting Christianity. It, it, it's worth picking up and reading. She, she's written about the big questions that people have about the Christian faith. And she describes a conversation she had a couple of years ago with a, with a friend, a friend with whom she had she'd gone to school, she's, she's had had spiritual conversations with him over the course of, of, of many years. And as they're leaving a, a lecture that they attended together at Harvard, uh, he, Rebecca says to her friend, she says, I know you think that what I believe is crazy. You think what I believe is crazy. Now, now the friend's girlfriend I- I- interrupts. And, and Rebecca explains, partly because she was nicer than either he or I ever have been. So she interrupts and says, no, 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 that's not what, I don't think that's what he's saying. She says, I'm sure he doesn't think your beliefs are crazy. But Rebecca says, no, no, no. I pushed back. I persisted. Yes, he does. I believe the entire universe revolves around a first century Palestinian Jew who died on a cross and was raised from the dead. That's crazy, right? To which her friend had to admit, yeah, I think that's crazy. Now, Rebecca in the conversation pointed out to her friend, who is a scientific atheist, meaning he believes that, that, that the only stuff that there is is the stuff that you can touch, the, the physical substances around it. She pointed out to him that, that his view of the world doesn't even make sense of a dearly held belief that he has that people have universal dignity and equality. He holds that to be a, a, a claim, but if, but if it's all just random, if we're just stuff, then people have no value or dignity beyond, beyond something we make up and agree to. And so she points out, she, she admits, she says, he's one of the smartest guys I know. He, he might well win a Nobel Prize someday, but I believe that he is wrong on the most important questions that can be asked, and he thinks that I'm wrong too, not just slightly wrong, but completely and profoundly wrong. Now, I think, pastorally, I would struggle less with you telling me you think I'm wrong as long as you admitted that's what you were doing. See, but philosophically, you walk in and say, oh, no, no, all religions, they all get to the same place. You know, I don't want to be somebody who judges another person without recognizing that's exactly what you're doing. You're judging me. You're telling me I'm wrong. So I, I want you to recognize that, that what, what you believe, if that's what you believe, and what I'm telling you is the Christian gospel, the core truth, of those are different things. We have to be willing to care enough about each other to actually say, no, those are different. I think you're wrong. See, but the reason I think... And and, and Paul is making this clear in Colossians 1. The reason that this is good news for us, that Jesus is supreme, that he is Lord, that he has all power and authority, is because we need a Savior. This is good news for us. Colossians 1 shows us that Jesus Christ is the creator, but Jesus Christ is also our Savior. Look again at verses 13 and 14. This beautiful description of, of the work of Jesus Christ in rescuing us. Verse 13, For God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I mean, there's so much beautiful theology packed into those verses. God is the one who rescues us. God has taken us out of the control of Satan in the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his Son, The kingdom of light. God has saved us. He has rescued us. Verse 14 says that that in Jesus Christ, we have redemption. Jesus paid the price to buy you out of your slavery to sin. Jesus paid the price to free you from the dominion of evil. Jesus paid the price to take you out from under the control of the devil and bring you into his own kingdom. The redemption price has been paid Jesus Christ, it's in him that we have the forgiveness of sins. That our sins are dealt with. Our sins are washed away. Why? Because Jesus, the creator, the sustainer of the universe, came to reconcile us to God. To make sinners, bring sinners into right relationship with God. Look at verse 20. That it's through Jesus that God is reconciling to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven. How? By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. See, what does it cost? What's the redemption price for your salvation? The death of Jesus. The very Jesus whom we've just declared to be the Savior, the supreme authority, the the creator of the universe. What does it cost to pay the penalty to free you from sin? What's it cost to to buy your forgiveness, to wash away your sin? It's the death of Jesus Christ, his blood, his blood, making peace for you, his blood shed on the cross. See, part of the reason that, that a passage like this feels so ordinary to us, that we can just kind of quickly even move past, I mean, we, we, can, we can skip through Paul's exalted languages because, you know what, we don't feel all that bad. We don't feel like the work of Jesus was all that big a deal. Because after all, we're pretty good people. And so it doesn't really cost that much to move me from like really good to great. I mean, it's just a little bit of a nudge. That's, that's, that's sometimes how we feel when we read scripture. But don't you see, the description is, you are one who was in, an enemy of God. You needed to be reconciled to God. Look at, look at the way Paul describes everyone in the church before coming to faith in Christ. Look at verse 21. This horrific description of who we were apart from Jesus Christ. Verse 21, once you were alienated from God, You were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Now, as Paul has been able to pile on beautiful language in the previous verses, he can now pile on this horrific language. You were alienated from God, separated from God, apart from God, not in relationship with God. Why? Not merely because you were indifferent to God— or apathetic about God, you actually had set yourself up as God's enemy in active opposition against his goodness. Why? Because you are someone who delights in evil. That's the description of, of who we were. And yet here in these verses, we have that, that beautiful turn of phrase, once you were this, and look at verse 22, but now. The gospel there in that, in, in, in the, in that transition Once you were alienated from God, verse 22, but now God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. See, have you come to see this truth? This truth that you are a sinner rebelling against God, and yet God has reconciled you to himself through Jesus Christ. See, when we read through a passage like this, when we, when we join with the ancient church in singing this song of praise, then we should be reminded of the greatness of Jesus Christ. But we only see his greatness, his majesty, when we realize where we would have been standing, in the depths of our sin, in the horror of our evil, alienated from God. Have you come to the place where you see the glory of Jesus? Now, I remember early in my ministry as a, as a brand-new youth pastor, I had taken our students—this uh, stu- was, was at a church before I served here at Faith— taken our students to a, a small youth conference. And so gathered with several other churches in, in southern Pennsylvania. We, we, had, we had listened to the speaker, and then we, we gathered as a group to, to, to sing and to, to give praise to God. But I, I walked out of the, the, the Bible lesson thinking, I could have done much better than that. I mean, I know I'm new at this and all, but like I would have been so much. They really should have asked me to be the one who spoke at this conference because that, that just wasn't all that good. I don't think it connected with our students. I don't think it, it magnified the, the gospel clearly. They should have chosen me. And then it was my responsibility to lead my own students in worship. So we're gathered there around the campfire. And, we, and I remember singing a, a song, a really simple song, that, that captures the language out of the book of Revelation of Jesus, the Lamb of God. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. It's a really simple chorus. Jesus, Lamb of God, worthy is your name. I mean, it's so simple that I still sing it on Wednesday mornings with our, with our preschoolers here at the church. Jesus, Lamb of God, worthy is your name. And it broke me. Because in glorifying and magnifying Jesus, the one who'd given his life for me, I realized who I was. Now, it's actually pretty difficult to lead worship when you're weeping. That's why worship leaders need to deal with their own hearts before they step onto the platform. Because when you break down in tears and a, and a bumbling, bluthering mess of, of uh, then, then everybody just stops and stares and realizes, I don't know what we're supposed to be singing now. See, so because when you gather and worship, when you see the glory of Jesus, when you see the depths to which he went, the Lamb of God slain for me, then you see the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ. See, so because in, in Colossians 1, it's not enough to just recognize that Jesus Christ is the creator. It's not enough to just recognize Jesus Christ is the Savior. You need to actually be able to say, Jesus Christ is my Savior. You have to respond to this gospel message. Because when you see the majesty and supremacy of Christ, it should change who you are. I mean, let's just, let's just look at, at some of the ways in which the gospel has changed the, the lives of the believers, the church in Colossae. Look at Paul's introduction back in verse 2. He's really just writing the, the like, he's just filling out the top of the letterhead on this letter. But he describes the church in Colossae. Listen, listen verse 2. He writes, "...to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ." He describes the church as those who are united to Christ like a family, brothers and sisters in the family of Christ. They are found in Christ so that he can call them holy and faithful. Why? Not because they were holy and faithful before they came to Christ, but because Jesus is holy and faithful. And so when found in him, God sees the holiness and faithfulness of Jesus. He describes the way in which the gospel should should change them their love for Jesus and their love for one another. Look at verse 5. He's describing for them the, the transforming work, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel. See, they're changed. They are given faith. They now have hope, and that love is shown forth in the church. Paul, it, it, challenging them then, that, that when you come to understand how great Jesus is and how miserable you would be without Him, how miserable you were before your faith in Christ, he, he's saying this should change your life. Look at verse 11. Or look, look with me at verse 10. I, I read this to our, our elder and deacons, where Paul says, We pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. The gospel should change you so that your life is changed, so that you live a life worthy of the Lord, so that you may please him in everything, that that all of your works would be declared to be good works, that you're bearing fruit, you're growing in gospel, hope, and knowledge, so that verse 11, you can be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. The power that is at work in you. Every time you do something good, you can take no credit for it. It's not yours. That power is Jesus. It's it's the glorious might of God himself at work in you, producing endurance and patience and allowing you to joyfully give thanks. It's God who has qualified you for this ministry. And at the end of what we read in this passage, we we see the description of, of when you see the grandeur and majesty of Jesus, when you see your own sin that you now rejoice in gospel hope and you will continue in your faith. You'll be one who is established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. See, when you see the greatness and glory of Jesus, then there is nothing you won't give up for him. When you see what he gave up for you, then whatever he asks of you wouldn't be be too much. Have you ever had the experience of going into the attic or the garage and and opening a box that you can't really, you don't remember what's in there. And then you open it up and you think to yourself, why did I ever keep this stuff in the first place? Like, what was I thinking that I thought this was gonna be worth saving? Because your life circumstances have changed or the nostalgia has worn off. And so you just look at it and you think, it's just a box of junk. See, when you magnify Jesus Christ, then the things of this world are, you just recognize, Why did this have such a hold on my heart? Why did I think that that brand new thing would give me such joy and fulfillment? Because the grandeur of Jesus Christ puts everything in perspective. And so if God asks you to give up that job, or give up that relationship, or give up your wealth for the sake of his kingdom, then you would say, of course. If God asks you to go somewhere for him, then there's nowhere you wouldn't go. Because you see where he has gone For you. The King of heaven came down to earth and died on the cross for you. See, Jesus becomes your joy and your hope. Do you see the majesty and glory of Jesus today? He is the hope for the weary, He is the truth for the doubting, He is the Savior of sinners. And so, Colossians 1 forces us to wrestle with a a profound but simple question. Who do you think Jesus Christ is? What do you think of him? Now, you know, that's a question the Bible asks explicitly. It's a question that Jesus himself asked his disciples. When they're gathered there in the region of Caesarea Philippi, he looks at them and he says to them, Who do people say I am? It's a question that's repeated for us in Matthew and Mark's Gospels. And they answer Jesus when, when asked, what do other people say about me? Who do they think Jesus is? Well, some say, well, you know, some of them probably fall in the, cate- the category that you're, you know, kind of a good guy. You're pretty nice. You do some good things. Others, they, they, they exalt you even a little bit more. They think you are sent from God, that you're a prophet, a spokesman for God. But then he turns the question on them personally. He does what Colossians 1 does to our own hearts, forces us to to wrestle with the question, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Can you make that declaration today? Have you turned from sin to put your trust in Jesus Christ? We have forgiveness through the death of Jesus. We have hope through the resurrection of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Father in heaven, I pray that you would apply this gospel hope to our hearts. Lord, for those today that struggle with doubt, I pray that they would hear in your word your truth. That your spirit would give them spiritual understanding, true knowledge to see what is real and true. And so, Father in heaven, I pray that your gospel would bring transforming work even now. Even now as we come in prayer to you. Father, for those that that are burdened, let them find freedom in Jesus. For those that feel dragged down by their sins, Lord, let them find forgiveness in Jesus. Lord, embolden us to go where you would send us, to speak with with boldness when asked to give a reason for the hope that we hold on to. Lord, let us hold firmly to the gospel. Father in heaven, I pray that, that we in our worship, in our gathering together, would bring glory and honor to Jesus, that we would see his majesty and power that we declare him to be Lord of all, to have supremacy in our lives. We come praying in the name of the Lord Jesus, the Christ, our Savior. Amen.